Hey everyone, welcome to episode 47 of the True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So before we begin, I just want to thank so many of you for so much. I really appreciate all the kind words about the loss of my father and all the compassion and patience as we are just kind of going through our own grieving process. I really do feel like we've all kind of like became a family. So I appreciate all the love that you guys sent to us. It was really sweet. We also want to thank you for all the iTunes reviews. We appreciate the kind words and really good reviews. So that made us feel a little bit better. We love you guys. (laughs) To everyone who said they feel like it's listening to friends, we want you to know that's exactly how we feel too. We feel like we're talking to our friends. And I I do have to say we also appreciate the constructive criticism because we're always trying to bring you a better show. So if you have something that you think will make us better, we want to hear about it. Yeah, absolutely. We always want to improve. So just remember, as always, to subscribe, rate, and review. It helps us more than you know. So let's get started with this episode. Today we're going to cover a case that is so scary because of how ordinary it is. Family issues and disputes seem as eventual as death or taxes. It's funny that as a society we discuss how terrified we are of strangers stalking us in the night or the possibility of a serial killer being in our midst, when it's usually those who know us best that murder us over the simplest of things. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. The 999 call came in at 1.32 a.m. on July 7, 2011 from a bungalow in Colwyn Bay. The woman on the phone said that someone had been stabbed. Her daughter had called her and told her that her father, the man she is separated from, threatened the lives of their daughter and their grandchild. To protect them, their daughter's boyfriend stopped it. A struggle ensued and Tony was stabbed. The 999 operator informed the woman who identified herself as Joanne, that police were on their way. When officers arrived at the scene, they found Joanne Barr, her two daughters, and their boyfriends all huddled together in the living room. The teenagers were embracing each other, and in the arms of one of the girls was a small child. They asked where the victim was, and they pointed to a nearby bedroom. Lying in bed, surrounded by blood-soaked sheets, was the body of 61-year-old Tony Robinson. Robinson was unresponsive and had multiple visible stab wounds. A crime scene unit was promptly called, and investigators began asking questions to the group in the living room. Everyone's story was the same. Tony and his daughter Ashley got into a fight. During this fight, Ashley and her boyfriend Gordon, who were living with Tony, with their newborn daughter, were screaming back and forth with each other. They said Tony threatened to kick them out of the house, like he had done with Ashley's mother, and he said that if they kept going on like they were, he was going to end them. Tony went for a knife, and the fight between him and Gordon began. Eventually, Gordon got the knife and stabbed Tony to protect himself and his new family. After this happened, In a panic, Ashley and Gordon called Ashley's mother, Joanne, who was living with Ashley's younger sister, Holly, and her boyfriend, Sasha. As soon as they got the call from Ashley, the three drove one mile's distance from the apartment to the bungalow to find out what had happened. And as soon as Joanne got there, she called 999, leaving them all where they were then. However, investigators knew that They couldn't take things at face value. Yes, Gordon is admitting the murder of Tony Robinson, but they had a lot more questions for everyone because the evidence at the scene really was not matching the story that they were all telling. Gordon was arrested and taken to St. Asaf's police station, while everyone else was taken to Colwyn Bay police station. While they were being taken away, police collected the evidence at the scene. Investigators found a few things to be strange with what they were finding. It appears that after the stabbing of Tony, 
Gordon took his clothes and folded them beside the bed. And inside the folded clothes, they found two knives. Another thing that was off was Gordon and Ashley told investigators that there was a struggle between the two men. However, the bedroom was spotless. Everything was in place, and Tony's clothes for the next day were even still hanging on the door of his closet. Nothing really was making sense, but it didn't seem like the group in the living room was going to be 100% truthful. Investigators decided to talk to Tony's family and then re-interview the teens and Joanne. So I think this is a good place to stop to just kind of I'm a moron because I forgot to tell you that this is taking place in Wales. So that's the 999. <laughs> I, I know. I said they called 999. John's looking at me like I'm crazy. Well, no, no. I, I'm, I'm very well aware of 999. It's okay. just it's not typical for like our American uh, audience to they probably wouldn't know what the hell that is. Right. Yeah. We're still going with our theme of the countries that are listening to us. So we're covering cases from them. So next week is going to be a case from Australia that Which we're really excited about. Awesome. But this is pretty shady already because it seems like, okay, a normal fight happened, but it escalated and it turned into murder. But after a murder like that took place, I don't know if I would take my clothes off, fold them and put them at the end of the bed that's holding the man that I just murdered. It's a little weird. It is kind of strange. It just doesn't make sense. No, it but I'm sure as we go along, it's gonna start to yeah. make sense. It's when when police get to a scene like this, and everyone has their story so concrete and so the same. You really have to wonder when did they call police versus when did the crime happen? Like, was it immediate or did they get their story straight first? I mean, I would imagine with that many people. I mean, my opinion, probably you know they're trying to get their story together first, but we don't know yet. That's just my observation. It's a good observation. <laughs> when looking into who to contact regarding the death of Tony Robinson, investigators were surprised to find that he had another family entirely. But not like in a weird way where like he's hiding a second family. Like he had a first marriage with kids. This is a second marriage with kids. Okay, so he so. was done with them sort of and then he moved on to the second this family. family number two. Okay. Yeah. Not weird. So it was from them that they're going to get the full story of what was really going on here. Now, we do have to keep like a bias in mind, too, because obviously they're not going to be 100% happy with the second replacement family. Oh, I'm sure. You know. So early on the morning of July 7th, investigators went to inform <clears throat> Claire and Mandy Robinson that their father had been killed earlier that morning. The girls were asked separately what they knew about their relationship between their father and stepsisters, and they had a lot to tell. Their father, Tony Robinson, had been born and raised in North Wales, in the shorelined resort of Colwyn Bay. The town is really beautiful, and it's home to many, like, bed and breakfasts. It, it's like a beach resort town. That's what it's like. That's really cool. Yeah. Which I have yet to go to a bed and bre- breakfast, but... I'm really... I mean, I don't know how much I am a fan of bed and breakfast. Depends on the place. Hotels creep me out, period. But like a bed and breakfast, because I'm just... You're really staying at one person's house and sleeping in a bedroom in their house. I know, but I look at it more like it's individual care, you know what I mean? Whereas it's like hotels, it's like, okay, just a bunch of people in your... I don't like sharing my meals with strangers, though. I don't know if you share with them. I think you eat I think with they other like people. make dinner for you, and then yeah. you all go down and eat dinner. That's kind of cool. Like, what if they were making, like, waffles or something? You'd love that. Yeah, I know, but not when, like, forced conversation with strangers. See, I'm all for it. I'm so awkward. You're uh, very friendly. I mean, you do say to me that I can talk to trees, which is not always... good. Well, I mean, the way it sounds... <laughs> I always make the joke, like, John could talk to a tree for, like, nine hours, and it would be a great conversation. It I probably like would, it would be. be yeah. But, I don't know. Bed and bread... Oh. I don't know. I don't know if it's my jam. To, I, I don't think it's maybe it's such a jam, but I think we have to try to say that we've done it. Okay, but, but if it has I, to be somewhere cool though. But like, if like I Wales. have a miserable night, I'll just take heat for it. It's okay. fine. But we got to do it at least once. <laughs> anyway, so this perfect bed and breakfast town is the ideal spot for an antique shop, 
And that was what Tony's parents took advantage of. Tony's parents were hardworking Polish immigrants who had escaped from a prisoner of war camp in Poland. Wow. Yeah, and they settled in Wales, and they built up their antique shop to be the most popular in the resort town. So that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool, yeah. It's an awesome accomplishment. And as soon as they could employ their children to work in the shop, that's what they did. So Tony and his brother worked in the antique shop with their parents. But Tony wasn't all about work. He also, he liked to play just as hard as he worked. And he was really into the social scene in North Wales in the 1960s, especially because he was a successful footballer. So he played football, he was good looking, and he is coming from a rich family because now they're rich because of the antique shop. Now, just for our American listeners, you mean soccer, right? Yeah, soccer. Okay. But you can't say that. No, I know. It's football. Yeah. It's football. He's a footballer. That's cool. So. Not as cool as rugby, though. They do say footballer, not like we say like football player, like footballers. That's actually really cool. Like a footballer. Yeah, it's cool. Makes you seem more he's badass. Because he's a footballer. Yeah. All right, anyway. <laughs> so, due to the fact that, of course, he had all of these great attributes, he was a really good player. He's rich. He's good looking. He was kind of like a ladies' man around town. He's the whole package. Yes. He was quite the catch. Yeah. So he's going to meet his first wife, Susan, when they were just teenagers. They had their first daughter, Mandy, in 1969. He married Susan a few years later, and the three moved into a bungalow that he built for them. Isn't that so adorable? That's very sweet. But also a massive slap in the face because he got murdered in the bungalow with his second family. Ouch. Yeah. So, just thinking about that. But he built the bungalow for Mandy and Susan. And outside of it, he plants three pine trees to represent each member of the family. And for this, he calls the property Three Pines. That's cool. That is so adorable. Like, you're definitely thinking, you're putting a lot of thought into even the names right. of your, uh, name of your residence. I think it's adorable that they name their residence. That's cool. We have to name our house when we first get a house. What are we going to call it? Well, I don't know yet because we have to see it. Because what if it doesn't fit? It's true. Okay. So, four years after the trees are planted, Claire is born. So, I feel bad for Claire. Because... She doesn't get a pine tree. And now she's living at a place called Three Pines. And you can't that, change a name. I know, because I think Three Pines is actually so cool that you can't make it Four Pines. It doesn't make any sense. No. But then at the same time, you're like kind of neglecting the... Uh, poor Claire. The, poor Claire, and she doesn't get herself a tree. I know. It's, it's kind of fucked up. It is fucked up. So now we know that this doesn't exactly pan out to be the fairy tale that we're making it seem to be in the beginning. It's... No surprise to anyone that this dream doesn't last long. Susan was very unhappy in her marriage with Tony. He worked really hard all week, and he was never really home. And then when the weekends came, the only thing he wanted to do, depending on what age he was, was either play football, coach it, or watch it. And as he was getting older, he really just wanted to go to the neighborhood pub, drink beer, have a pint. That's what they say. Okay. You like that? little? I like that. That's cool. Local terms. All right. And just watch football. So Susan was getting upset because obviously they're not having family time during the week. So they want to have family time on the weekends. But he'd rather drink and watch football. Unfortunately, that's a lot of people, not just him. It's very true. The marriage really isn't going to last. And the couple finally divorced in 1979 when Tony's 30. And Mandy recalls this situation really well. She remembers blaming her mother because her mother was the one who left. So she was really upset that her father had to leave. I think at one point she recalls she tied herself to one of the like kitchen appliances because she didn't want to leave. That must be that must That's have really been traumatizing. Sad. Yeah. So Things grew more and more difficult for Tony because he didn't want Susan to leave. And he felt like there was really truly no problem in their relationship or with their family. And he loved his two daughters so much. So this divorce hit him pretty hard. And eventually what happened was 
his two daughters and their mother, Susan, are going to move down to Hampshire, which is a little bit over 200 miles away south. And he's going to sell his parents the Three Pines home. And he moves into an apartment, which is about a mile away from the antique shop. And he's work. he now owns the antique shop. All right, that's cool. He's making moves. Yeah, so now he's a single bachelor living in an apartment. He's 30 years old. So he's still young. But he does make the trip every other weekend down to go see his daughters. Okay, so he's respectable. Yeah, it's just, it's sad because it's a broken family. True. That started out, you know, with such high hopes. Yeah. Well, it happens, just like a lot of other families, but at least he's making, you know, the initiative to go see his kids, which is big. It is. It's a big man move. Actually, that was the name of the Amityville house, wasn't it? High Hopes? High Hopes, was it? I think that's what the house was named. I think you're right. So see, this house is named, Amityville's named, maybe we shouldn't name our house. Let's not name our house something bad might happen. Yeah, yeah, let's not do that. So after the divorce, Tony returns to being a very eligible bachelor once again. And of course, the many women in the seaside town want to date him. He enjoyed all of this female attention and really had no intentions of settling down until six years after his divorce. So it's a long time to be single for six years. Well, he took his time. I mean... Well, you could tell that he really cared about Susan then, you know? True, but it's also... You also don't want to be... You don't want to try to get into a relationship and go down the same path that you wound up doing the first time. That's true. Maybe he's mature. You know, he's... Exactly. Listen, women mature faster than men. It's an actual fact. So And 30 really is really young to have a 10-year-old's child. It is. Absolutely. A 10-year-old and a, and a 4-year-old. True. It's a lot of responsibilities. So, one night in 1984 at the pub, of course, that's where Tony always is, He was approached by a woman who offered to buy him a drink. Her name was Joanne Barr. And she was 19 years old. Tony took a very strong liking to her, and the couple immediately moved in together. Now, this didn't fare too well with the girls, as now at this point, Mandy is 15 and Claire is 9. So they were closer in age to their father's girlfriend than he was to her. I mean, 15 and 19, that's really close. So I don't think I would like it too well if I was in that situation. Yeah, it's a little odd. And of course, that means that Mandy in particular, the older one, is not going to listen to Joanne. And Joanne had a very strong personality and she didn't try and be respectful. She tried to boss around Mandy and Claire when they came to visit her father, their father. So Joanne, that's not nice. That's, it's not the right move as a stepmom. Come on, Joanne. So, of course, this made the relationship between Tony and his daughters really strained. The tipping point of this came when Mandy turned 18, so a few years later. She had just passed her driving test, and with her mother's permission, she was allowed to drive up and surprise her father. So it's a long trip. It's just about 250 miles. First of all, if my daughter got her license the same day, I'm not letting her drive 250 miles. That's probably that's mo- a lot the, like, of driving. That's, that's five hours of driving. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's that's a little overboard. I wouldn't allow it either. That's excessive. I mean, you just got your license. I don't know about that. Maybe like a year after, maybe you know, you get some experience in you. You yeah, go with a her bit. a few times. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's a little crazy. It was a risky move, Susan. Yeah, I don't know. That's weird. So she gets to her father's house to his apartment, and she's knocking on the door, but no one's answering. So finally, Joanne opens the window. They live on the second floor, and she's refusing to let her in. She told the girl that her father was sleeping and that she wasn't going to wake him up or let her in. So furious, she leaves, and she spends the night with her grandparents. So it's kind of like screwed up. I drove all this way, but you won't let me come see my father? How serious of a nap is he taking? I mean, unless they're, you know... Doing it? Doing it. Maybe. Maybe, like, they they planned on doing it? But it doesn't matter. Put on some clothes. Say hello to your daughter who drove five hours. I agree. But I'm just saying. They must have been doing the dirty. Maybe that's why. I don't know. I think she was just being a big B, and she didn't want to wake him up and tell. Which is so stupid. I mean, like, how, you know... She seems a little vindictive. Oh, absolutely. So, the next day, she goes into her father's shop... And told him what happened. 
and she left angry and she actually didn't speak to Tony for three years after that day. That's a lot. Yeah. I don't blame her, though, depending no. on what he responded with, because I'm sure it wasn't good. And I'm sure, you know, he defended his wife. Well, I mean, his girlfriend. Right. I think I think you're right on that one. I think that he must have not said sorry. Yeah. He must have. Like, get over it? Yeah. That, that's what I get from it. And you never tell a teenage girl to get over it. No. Because they won't. Because I'm still not over things that happened when I was a teenage girl. Wow. No, I'm just saying. Like, teenage girls just are incapable of getting over things. So that is the last thing you need to say. Or calm down. Calm down never works. So he probably said, calm down, get over it, and she flipped. Probably. That's like exactly probably what happened. So so they don't talk for three years, but out of the blue, she gets a phone call in 1991 from Tony, her father. He told her that Joanne had just given birth to a baby. And Mandy thought this was strange because she didn't even know that Joanne was pregnant. She usually heard what was happening with her father through her sister, Claire. Because Claire, despite not having a pine tree, still talked to her father. They still were in communication. So that's usually how Mandy got what was going on with her dad. But Claire didn't even know that Joanne was pregnant. That's interesting. Yeah, to hide a pregnancy is a little strange. At the same time, I don't think it's weird because... The one daughter had no contact with her father for three years. And maybe Claire just didn't get enough information when they talked. Maybe. But you know she must mean? have not seen her for nine months. Well, that's that could be possible yeah. as well. I mean, I go months without seeing my mother, mom or dad. Right. So, missing her father and wanting to let things go, Mandy actually got excited about having a half-sister. Like having a baby in the family. So I guess babies have a way of doing that, like bringing people together that haven't spoken in a long time. So this could be good. So Mandy and Claire and Tony and Joanne all kind of like mend their relationship and get together over this baby. And that baby's name is Ashley. They have a, he has another girl. He has a lot of girls because eventually soon after Ashley is born, Joanne gets pregnant with a second child. And then she gives birth to a second girl named Holly. So now Tony has four daughters with two women. That's crazy. Yeah. All girls. All girls. So now there's Ashley and Holly added into the mix. So after the birth of her second daughter, Tony decides to move Joanne and his two youngest daughters back to Three Pines. And Mandy and Claire both recall this being kind of creepy because it was almost like his father their father was replacing them and like recreating what they did have before right it's almost like you know Here, you messed up before let's let's try to do this almost the same way again right. same let, house same amount of people in the house like like let's copy and paste another yeah. family in here that's so creepy it is a little creepy. That is creepy i can see what they mean I would just feel uncomfortable, like, even going to visit them because you would remember having your Christmases there, your holidays there. That must be hard. It would be hard. Yeah. All right. So we're going to take a break to hear from our first sponsor, which is a, another ParCast podcast that I think you guys will be into. So if you guys like us, we have another amazing podcast for you to check out. Every Thursday, the ParCast Network's podcast, Hostage, tells the complicated stories behind the world's most intense hostage situations and the people inside them. Behind every hostage situation, there's a complex dynamic between hostage, captor, and negotiator. Say the wrong thing and make the wrong move, and the hostage's life is in jeopardy. Hostage explores the psychological tactics used in hostage negotiations and what the human brain does when a person is held captive. Find out how hostage situations transpire and what strategies negotiators employ to find a peaceful resolution. Hostage highlights the moments where things also go tragically wrong, as well as techniques that miraculously saved lives. Be sure to catch the astonishing two-part episode on Captain Phillips of the, the MV Mersk, Alabama. 
Then check out how it all began with the thrilling three-part episode on the Hearst kidnapping. That's a really good one. That is good. That's that first case where I really heard about Stockholm Syndrome for the first time. And everyone always like calls to that one. Like That is the best case of it. So that sounds like a really good case to listen to. So search for and subscribe to Hostage wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review Hostage from the Podcast Network. Okay, so let's get back to the show. Where we left off, we have Tony with his new family living in Three Pines, which was originally built for his first family. And this is this whole conversation is going down while investigators are asking Mandy and Claire just really what was going on in Tony's life. So they're giving the whole backstory. So where we are now, new family, new home. Well, new family, same home. For about a decade and a half, everyone is going to live semi-awkwardly and eventually infuriatingly in modern family bliss, right? Because this is like the perfect like hot mess, modern family, there's step-siblings, half-siblings, you know what I mean? It's like the melting pot. Correct. So the dynamic was shifting with Tony's new family as it had his old. At this point, Ashley and Holly were teenagers And Joanne and Tony were constantly fighting about the way the girls were being raised. Tony thought that Joanne was letting them do more than they really should. And this is going to come to a head when Ashley meets a boy on MySpace. That's trouble. Yes, it is trouble. (laughs) So this and this is like in 2009. So it's when MySpace was going down its really dark paths. The boy's name was Gordon Harding. When the two met in real life, they instantly began a relationship, and within months, Ashley is pregnant at 17. It's a true modern-day romance, MySpace and pregnancy. So Joanne was really annoyed at this situation, but Tony was really supportive. I mean, he's getting older, so he kind of doesn't mind that he's being a grandfather because he technically is of grandfather age, and he already is a grandfather because at this point, Mandy and Claire have had children. So... Tony, being supportive, rented the expecting couple a flat that was owned by his brother just before their daughter was born in November of uh, 2009. So it's really nice. He gets them an apartment and he's paying for it. That is nice. Not to mention... Not a lot of dads would do that. No, especially being a father and warned, you know, Joanne that he didn't... You know, he didn't like how much freedom they had. And now look what happens. So, like, even knowing all, like, even though he kind of predicted it and now they're going through it, he still is doing the right thing by taking care of her, which is nice. And like you said, not a lot of dads would do that. Right. So after the birth of their grandchild, Joanne and Tony were fighting even more. And at this point, Joanne stayed more with her daughter, Ashley, than she did in her own home. The Christmas after the baby is born, so really only a month later, Joanne and Tony get into a really loud fight. And at some point, Joanne grabs a kitchen knife and threatens Tony with it. So feeling like things were getting too far, Tony is going to call the police. And when they came, they actually removed Joanne from the residence. And her youngest daughter, Holly, is going to follow her. Tony was broken up about the entire situation. His intentions weren't for Holly to leave, too. And he found himself all alone again in Three Pines. Joanne and Holly move into Tony's brother's flat, where Ashley and her boyfriend were staying. And Ashley and her boyfriend, along with their infant child, are going to stay with Tony's parents, Ashley's grandparents. So it's kind of like a flip-flop situation that they do. But I do think that it does take a lot of balls to move into your I guess your your ex-husband's brother's apartment you're saying okay I'm I'm gonna threaten your brother with a knife but then I'm gonna move into your apartment is that okay yeah like isn't isn't that a little weird it isn't isn't Tony paying for it yes so it's just so bizarre it's a really weird family dynamic that seems to happen here so already I'm sure police are thinking like okay from everything we've heard Tony hasn't been the aggressor In any situation. And if they thought that he was, they would have removed him off the premises and not not Joanne. So 
So although the family claimed to be working on their issues, the fights kept getting worse and worse. And every fight was about money. They surrounded two issues. First, Joanne and the girls thought that their jewelry was still at the house and they wanted it back. And then the second issue they fought about was an insurance policy. All of the valuable jewelry that the family owned was kept in a safe in a cabinet beside Tony's bed. When the women moved out, they were determined to get that jewelry. Tony also cashed in one of his own life insurance policies for a total of 9,000 pounds. He kept 1,000 pounds in his safe and the other portion he kept in the bank. Joanne suspected that he cashed in a policy, but she couldn't confirm that it was the one that was only in his name or it was the one that is a joint claim between the two of them. So I think she was under the impression that he cashed in the one he wasn't supposed to cash in, but he didn't do that. So one day when she was visiting the bungalow, picking up some more of her things and her mail, she is going to go into the safe. And usually the safe was open, but this time it was locked. So she went to go get the key where it usually is, and it wasn't there. So she went out to confront Tony, who was sitting in the backyard. And she is going to demand that he give her the key. But of course, he refuses. She said that her jewelry was in there and that she was entitled to it. And it's at this point that Tony tells her that he sold all of her jewelry. (laughs) And this statement throws Joanne into a rage. And again, feeling threatened, Tony calls the police. I want to also say, Tony's a smart guy. Because what better way to handle the situation, like an adult, than if you think that something's going to escalate, so you call the cops before it does. Especially if, you know... Let's say Joanne in this case is kind of, you know, argumentative and is trying to be, well, she has had, you know, she's being aggressive, has violent tendencies, I guess, at times from the time before. He's smart. Like, I got to commend him for that. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, really respond much. He doesn't get violent or, you know, whether it's physical or verbal. And he kind of just was like, listen, uh, I feel a little threatened. Let me just call the cops. And that's it. Like, you got to commend him on that. Yeah, I think I that's guess. a smart move. You know what I mean? He's being extremely smart by not being violent with women. He's just kind of doing his thing. Just calling the cops. Right. Instead of calming her down and having to, like, push her down or, like, put his hands on her, he's saying, I'm just going to call the police. Right. I think he was trying to avoid a physical confrontation with Absolutely. Joanne. Absolutely. So when the police come, he, of course, doesn't make a formal complaint against her, but he just wanted them to come and remove her from the situation, which, like you said, is definitely the smart move here. So the breakup of his second family was really not good for the emotional health of Tony. He became more and more isolated from the rest of society. And he began neglecting the store and spending more and more time at the pub. He told his daughter Claire that he was at his lowest point when he was sitting drunk on a park bench and his daughter Holly walked right by him and pretended that she didn't even know who he was. And shortly after this, Tony suffered what was described by his loved ones as a nervous breakdown. And although they felt shunned by their father and pushed aside by his new family, his two eldest daughters chose to help their father in his desperate time of need. Mandy and Claire decided to pick up their father on Father's Day and take him away for a while. When he gets to his daughter Claire's house, he tells her that the first thing he wants to do is go to a solicitor. She drives her father to his solicitor, and it's here that he asks Claire if she wants to go into the appointment with him. She said that she did want to go because she was concerned about her father's mental health. So he warned her before she went in that she may hear some things that she doesn't like, but that she should know that they were here to change it and that he was sorry. So she found out rather quickly what he was talking about. And he told the solicitor that he wanted to change his will. Claire learned that the last time he changed his will was back in 2005, when he made Joanne the sole beneficiary of his estate. And he told her that Joanne had made him do this. And Claire, you know, she was really hurt because according to the document in 2005, 
the only thing that Claire and Mandy would have gotten would have been to go into his, their father's home and take one personal item of their father. That's it. By law, that's the minimum that you have to provide for a loved one, for a family member. Right, which probably, that is that is what Joanne made Tony do, most likely. Correct. And it makes sense, uh, you know, as to why that was changed in 2005. And that's probably why it makes sense now that he's trying to go back to change all those things. Right, because he doesn't want Joanne to be right. the only one who gets everything. So Tony, when he's there, he actually rips up the document and he creates a new will that is going to evenly split his estate amongst his four daughters. So he does include all four. After the signing of the new will, Tony spent the next few days with Claire, and then he traveled to Mandy's house, where they spent the following few days with her as well. So back in Colwyn Bay, Joanne is going to start plotting things here. She's going to suggest that while Tony is away, Ashley and Holly should move into the bungalow with their boyfriends and Ashley's child. The four took up residence in the house, running amok. They were ordering food. They brought their dogs. They never cleaned up after themselves or the animals. It was just like a filthy mess in that house. So Claire had gotten word from neighbors that they saw clothes hanging up on the line of the bungalow, but they knew that Tony wasn't there. So they wanted to let her know, like, someone's staying in your father's house. And of course, you know, it's pretty suspicious. So Claire decided to call the, the home line of the bungalow and someone picked up and it was Ashley. Ashley is going to make matters worse because she asks Claire to do her two favors. Keep her father south so they could stay longer and not tell him that they're there. So Claire, of course, is going to refuse to do this. And Ashley gets really angry. When Claire told Mandy and her father what had happened, Tony got really upset. And he just started saying, I know what they're doing. They're going through my papers. They're trying to get in my safe. All they care about is money. And he asks if they will drive him up north the next morning. So he seems to be really suspicious of these two girls. Well, well not even the two girls. Just everybody else that's there in the house. Like, what's your reasoning for going in there? So I, I, I would be like, I want to go there and right now. <laughs> Especially if I had a safe with money and my belongings in it. Yeah, I just think it's kind of rude that just move in with your boyfriends and your dogs and your child. and well, it's, Just because your dad's away, you can't move in his house. Well, it's utter disrespect. And it all stems from the way Joanne has, I don't know whether it's brainwashing or not, but it does seem like she has an influence on her children. And they are pretty much being taught to be disrespectful to their father. And that's that's so messed up to do. So Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's what's happening here. So the next morning, Mandy drove Tony home. And when they got to the house, they saw the place was a wreck. There was food containers and dog dishes everywhere. And as they walked further into the house, Holly runs into her father's arms. And this is kind of emotional for Tony because Holly hadn't been speaking to him. And she hadn't... He hadn't seen her for six months. So the fact that she's embracing him, it kind of gives into like his softer side and him really loving his daughters. So after this embrace and the two of them are starting to talk again, he says, you know what? If you guys want to live here for a little while, that's okay. But you have to keep the house clean and we have to have rules. So that's where the situation goes. In other words, he folded because... He loves him so much, and that's why. Meanwhile, that was probably something they did just to get on that side of Tony. Exactly. It's, it was very manipulative. You know what I mean? what it seems like. So Mandy decides to stay the night because she she feared for her father's safety here a little bit, too, because there's more of them than there is him, and she knows he is a little mentally unstable, and she doesn't really want him to start drinking again, so she stays the night. And she brings him tea at the end of the night, and she finds him in his room, and he's really disappointed. He's has all the paperwork, like, spread out on his bed, and he said, I know they went through all my paperwork. They saw that I cashed the life insurance policy. 
And they tried to get into the safe. I know because everything's like out of order. So he's really disappointed that his daughters are trying to take advantage of him like this. So Tony did check in with his daughters afterwards because Mandy is going to leave the next morning, but she's going to say, please, dad, call me or Claire every day just because we want to make sure that you're okay because she felt a little uneasy leaving him there with the four teenagers. So he does. He calls every day and he does complain about the girls. He says they're not doing anything around the house. Uh, Within a week, he had Holly and her boyfriend, whose name's Sasha, go back to living in the apartment because he couldn't take the fact that they weren't doing anything around the house or cleaning. They were just playing video games all day. He told Ashley that because she had a baby to care for, that her and Gordon can stay because they had a little bit of a different situation. They were trying to get up on their feet. But Holly is going to go back to living with her mother. Okay. So we will learn that Ashley, however, did not just want a place to stay. She was nearing 18, and she wanted her father to pay for her driving lessons and, of course, more food for the baby. So she had ulterior motives here. When she asked her father for the money, he refused and told her that she and Gordon would both have to get jobs if they wanted to pay for things, that they couldn't just always have their hands outstretched. But investigators did not hear this last bit from Mandy or from Claire, as the fight that would ensue the night Tony died was over these driving lessons. After hearing the other side of things from Tony's two oldest daughters, investigators sure had a lot of questions for Joanne, as well as her daughters and their boyfriends. So by the time the report on Tony's wounds had come back, as well as a brief analysis on the clothes that Gordon was wearing that night, the first thing they wanted to do was to talk to the five individuals that were in the house that night. So it was determined that Tony Robinson had been stabbed a total of 15 times by two separate knives. And the wounds matched the shape and the size of the two knives that were found folded in Gordon's clothing. The knives had both blood and fatty tissue on them. Four of the 15 stab wounds went entirely through Tony's body from front to back. Which tells you... That's a vicious attack. The ferocity of those actions that were taking place. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, that wasn't just, oh, I stab you. You know, like, this I'm was... I'm trying to defend myself. That's... Yeah. Oof. Four times. It's a lot. He also had small defensive cuts on his hands as if he were trying to fight off his attacker. The blood at the crime scene is only pooled on the bed and in the sheets, meaning that the stabbing and the attack took place on the bed, not all around the bedroom, as explained by Gordon. The boys' clothes also tell the same story, as the blood stains are not really on Gordon's shirt, but there's a massive accumulation on the inside of his pants. So that leads investigators to believe that at one point, Gordon was straddling Tony, stabbing him. And that's why the blood pooled on the inside of his legs. That's that's terrible. What a way to go, you know? Yeah, that's really sad. So as police confront Joanne about how this story doesn't make sense at all, she's very steadfast in the fact that she knows nothing about what took place that night. She only came because her daughters called for her. She reveals to police that she and Ashley had a conversation the day prior where Ashley said to her very adamantly, I think your jewelry's in the safe, Mom, and so is ours, because he carries that key so close to his chest. Joanne says that she did not encourage her daughters to go into the safe. Rather, she told them just to let everything go. But Ashley and her younger daughter, Holly, were both very determined to get into that safe. In another investigation room down the hall, and one in a different town, the investigators ask Ashley and Gordon to explain to them once again what truly happened that night. Because remember, Gordon was taken to a different police station than everybody else was. 
Ashley told them that earlier in the night, her and her father had gotten into an argument about driving lessons and food for the baby. She wanted money and he wasn't going to give it to her. This really made her angry because she knew that he had the money to do it. He just didn't want to help. And she knew because she read the life insurance policy that he cashed. He told her that he would kick her and her baby out on the street if she kept acting this way. And this made her cry. About an hour later, Tony headed out for the pub around 9 p.m. While Gordon was at the pub, Ashley and Gordon had decided that night that they were going to break into the safe while he was sleeping. So when Tony returned home at 11.45 p.m. that night, he gave Ashley the money she wanted for the food and driving lessons and went to bed. So he did give her the money. Shortly after, the two snuck into Tony's room holding a large knife. However, just as they were going to get around his bed, Tony woke up startled and Gordon dropped the knife. Ashley, terrified, ran out of the room. Gordon then tells investigators that Tony grabbed a small kitchen knife that he had on his bedside table and the two began struggling. While they were fighting, Gordon says that Tony was yelling that he was going to kill Ashley and the baby, so he claimed he was fighting for his family. After Tony was dead, they then called Ashley's mother, Holly, and her boyfriend to ask them what to do. So that's the story of Gordon and Ashley. Well, it seems like he's telling the truth. Like, like those are the events that happened. Like, well, other than the fact that he probably wasn't defending himself and right. his family, but that kind of seems to be what transpired. Well, just the fact that it wasn't a defensive thing. It was, we're going in. And killing to, you. Yeah. yeah. Like, there was no self-defense. What, what's really strange, though, is what I don't get about this is if he was at the pub, why didn't they just go in... Oh, because he was wearing the key around his neck. Most likely, yeah, he had the key. So that's why they couldn't get into the the safe. safe. Right. So they probably figured if they can subdue him, or just steal the key, or steal his, yeah, right. But then again, if you were going to do that, then then why would you have a knife with you? So unless you were planning to kill from the start. That's interesting. Well, we're going to learn that that's not even what happens. Okay. Not even what you think happened, happened. <laughs> okay. I'm telling you. All right. All right. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to take a break to hear from our final sponsor, Wix.com. Are you looking to start a website for your business, hobby, family, or personal use? The most simple yet sophisticated looking website to design platform is Wix.com. I have been using Wix for my educational website since I started teaching six years ago, and I swear it gets better and better every year. So join me and over 140 million people who use Wix for their website design. You can start and publish for free and choose from over 500 stunning templates or start from scratch, changing, customizing, and adding anything you want by adding your own text, images, videos, and more. If you choose to use Wix, you will gain access to the tools that you need to create the website you want. You'll get unlimited storage, a custom domain, email addresses for your business, email marketing tools, premium apps, and a dedicated support team. And if what you want is a serverless, hassle-free coding, Wix code is right for you. This will allow you to access website creation without limits and the ability to create your own advanced web applications and robust websites with no limits. So get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash podcast to get 10% off. Again, that's Wix.com slash podcast. All right, let's get back to the show. So Ashley and Gordon were going to stick to this story, even though forensically it made absolutely no sense. Investigators wanted to come at the group hard with tangible evidence that they could not just explain away. They needed to prove the timeline of their story was wrong, and the easiest way to do it would be with technology. So the first thing they're able to use is CCTV, 
I love the United Kingdom for their CCTV use. It is impeccable. I love it. I need that kind of CCTV activity in this apartment complex. I agree with you. And I want access to it at all times. I know that's unreasonable, but I do. I, all I know is I didn't realize how like how crazy their CCT that ah. CCTV. Yes, I'm sorry. CCTV um, was there because until I saw that movie, A London Has Fallen with Gerard Butler, lots of cameras oh, everywhere. Yeah. So accurate. Okay, well, <laughs> I'm not saying that it is accurate, but I'm just saying. I just that, like your sourcing. I just do. Uh, you know, I, sometimes people relate to movies. You know, but yeah, they have a really sophisticated program there. Yeah, and Where it's, it's not like that here. It does help them a lot when it comes to solving crimes or seeing what happened to people because there is yes. people always watching you. Also, not to mention the fact that all their cameras aren't like those like really shitty, cheapy ones where you can't even see what's happening. They are all high def, ultra high def. They zoom in. There's no staticky shit. Yeah, that is really cool. It's fantastic. That. Yeah. We really need it here in this complex. The other day, a woman's back window was smashed and I... Was I jumped to the conclusion that she was dead in her apartment. And I had to pretty much find out where she was. And I made John make sure that she was okay. <laughs> because everyone here in the complex just talks to me. So even if I don't yeah. want to talk to them, they I avoid talk to the, me. I avoid everyone at all costs. So I found out that she's alive and well. And she, I she's don't know what happened fine. to her window. but um, no, wait, You didn't want to be rude and ask. But yeah. she's okay. She's perfectly fine. For two days, her window was smashed. So we well, were thank, concerned. Well, thank, thank God it didn't rain. Yes. See, I'm concerned, like, on the inside, but I'm too scared to go check because what if her killer was still in the apartment? So I sent you. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> so they're going to check CCTV to kind of check all of the stories that went down. Joanne says that she went into the bungalow after the murder because Ashley called her. She told them what route she took, and they watched to see her car if it was going on that route at the time she said it was. So they're going to watch CCTV footage for hours. And Joanne's car left for the bungalow, which is just a one-mile drive, before 12 a.m., which would only be minutes after Tony came home, based on um, his receipt from the pub and what Ashley said. So we know that he came home around 11.45. So the whole thing didn't happen in 15 minutes. Because she called police around 1.30 a.m. Right. So, so they waited, must have waited a while. <laughs> yes. So initially, Joanne's going to tell investigators that she left for Tony's bungalow at 1.15. That's not true. She left her house at midnight. The CCT cameras show that she most likely was at the bungalow before her ex-husband was murdered. Wow, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the other piece of technology that helped police was cell phones. The calling and text message history of the five individuals that they were questioning basically gave investigators a minute-by-minute rundown of exactly what was happening from... Tuesday, all of Tuesday, into Wednesday morning, which he was murdered early Wednesday morning. The messages showed that all five individuals had been conspiring about this murder for an entire day. In a text message from Gordon to Joanne, he says, I know he's got cash. I know what's in the safe. It's cold, hard cash. And he keeps claiming that he has none. In messages with her daughters... It's clear that the girls had been through their father's paperwork and that they had found out that he cashed in the life insurance policy. And Joanne was stating that she was trying to call around to insurance companies to see what policy he cashed in and exactly how much money he received. And there's records of her calling the insurance companies as well. That day, there were over 20 calls between Ashley, Holly, and Joanne monitoring the movement of Tony. Holly is texting Ashley, telling her that she is the only one who can get into the safe because she lives there. The three women then meet for lunch, and it seems like some convincing needed to be done to convince Ashley to do it because Holly keeps telling Ashley 
that she wants to be present for what's going on. And Ashley finally says, okay, okay, I'll do it in a text message. But Ashley is telling Holly that she doesn't want her to be present for when it goes down, like in quotation marks. And this is where things get a little tense between the two sisters in their conversation. You can tell that Holly is under the impression that Ashley and Gordon would take the money for themselves. Therefore, Holly wanted herself and Sasha to be there as well. Ashley finally agrees to let her sister in when they get there, but she tells Holly to wait until she gives her the go-ahead for them and her mother to head over to the house. So the whole time the girls are talking, Gordon is exchanging messages with Sasha, and the two boys are kind of psyching each other up to do what they're about to do. Gordon is repeatedly telling Sasha that he has to be there to help him. He needs him to man up. So this plan, though, that they think they have so perfectly set up is going to go completely wrong. Of course. I mean, yeah, I mean, it only took them a day to figure it out. And they're not, they're definitely not the sharpest tool in the sheds. No. In the shed. They're not. So there's a 13 minute gap in between the text messaging between Ashley and Holly. And in reality, this is when Tony is giving his daughter the money that she requested. And he's talking to her about taking on more responsibility and stepping up as a mother and a woman. You need to grow up, Tony is telling her, basically. You can't live here unless you do. So Holly, Sasha, and Joanne take this radio silence as Gordon and Ashley break, like, are breaking in right now into Tony's room. They think that Ashley and Gordon aren't telling them that they're starting this plan. Oh. So they're misunderstanding everything. So it's for this reason that the three drive over too early to the bungalow and it's only a mile away so they get there pretty quick finally ashley is going to text holly he just told me he's gonna kick me out just like he kicks mom out and holly replied we're on our way and ashley says no wait it's too early you guys have to wait down at the bottom of the hill and holly replies no we're on our way we're going to jump over the front gate no houses no witnesses Joanne then drops Holly and Sasha off yards away from the bungalow. And Sasha has a large hunting knife on him at this point. Gordon told him to bring it because that one was a little bit bigger than a kitchen knife. Joanne is going to wait a few blocks away for the call. And then she's going to drive over. Because she didn't want neighbors to see her car. Holly and Sasha waited outside the back kitchen window until Ashley let them in once their father turned his lights off. The two were snuck into the house and the boys, armed with knives, the girls behind them, slowly walk into Tony's room. Minutes later, Joanne receives a text. Things happened. Dad is no more. Sorry, Mom. Later, investigators are going to find out that Joanne had been trying to call insurance policies, uh, insurance companies to see whether or not they were cashed in. And the girls had visited every local pawn shop and jewelry store in search of their missing jewelry. In the end, there was only 900 pounds in the safe. Holly even confessed to a close friend that she and her mom were mad because their dad was refusing to leave the house. They wanted the house still. Once confronted with all the information they had found out over the past 48 hours, only Gordon stuck to his original story. He wouldn't budge. Holly admitted to being in the house when her father was killed. Ashley will admit to the text messages, but will try and explain that they're being taken out of context, that she was just figuratively saying, talking about killing her father. It doesn't really work when you have a plan and you're letting your sister in. Yeah. And the, and the boyfriends. Yeah. And in a really sad side part of this story slash investigation, um... We find out from Sasha's mother in the tabloids and media that Sasha has extreme learning disabilities and his comprehension was very low and he was very influenced by Gordon and what he did. 
And Sasha's really going to be the only one who completely confesses to everything that happened. And there is videotape of his confession and he's extremely remorseful, sobbing. Like he, as he's telling police in his full confession, what happened, he's saying that he doesn't even remember who did what, like it was all a blur. He said, I remember stabbing, but I don't know where I stabbed or, or what I did. Which could, I yeah. mean, that could happen. No, I, mean, I just feel, I feel really sad. But, yeah. I, but I will say that police completely took this into account. Sasha wasn't interviewed without his mother. They waited for his mother to be there. Then he was questioned. So they kind of, they told his mother the situation first. Then they went into the investigation room. Like, they didn't, like, surprise them on it. Like, his mother was there to help him through it. Um, which I think was very great on the investigators part knowing his mental capacity now i wonder if they had to do that or if that was just something no, it was that a they courtesy that's not part of what they right. had to do i mean they needed the mother did need to be present but they didn't have to tell her beforehand so she could kind of like brace him for it got it yeah so it was a courtesy that they did oh that is for nice the family yeah um so sasha does confess he says it's like I said before, all a blur. And the last thing that he remembers was seeing Tony lying in bed with the blood all around him. Um, the one piece of information that is going to be very useful that they get from Sasha is that when the murder took place, all four teenagers were in the room. Ashley and Holly were there. They didn't leave. They didn't try to stop it. And Joanne, the lovely, lovely woman she is, is going to completely distance herself from the situation and do nothing at all to help her daughters. Investigators state that in the interrogation room, she had zero sympathy for Tony. She shed no tears for him, her daughters, or their boyfriends, or her grandchild. All of her answers were obstructive, and it was clear that her only goal was to protect herself. She just kept saying their plan was to get the jewelry, and I kept telling them not to. All five parties were charged with conspiracy to commit murder and obstruction of justice. The four teens were charged with murder. Gordon, even through the trial, stated that he only stabbed Tony in self-defense. The jury did not believe him, nor did they sympathize with him or the other three teens. They were all found guilty in February of 2011. Gordon and Ashley were sentenced to a minimum of 22 years. Sasha, 20 years. Holly, 18. Joanne, who was called a wicked woman by the judge, was sentenced to six years, but later had the sentence reduced to four because of her eventual admission of guilt. But what's so crazy is that those four people who are responsible for the death of Tony Robinson were sentenced to more time in jail than they had been alive. Which is crazy, right? And you, and then the always, always the argument is, is that fair? And you say to yourself... Here I think, I mean, it's, they have so much evidence to show that it, they did conspire to commit this murder. It was planned. It's premeditated. That's murder. And that's a devious, devious plan to kill your father who has provided for you for so long. True. It's so sad. And they are going to try to appeal their cases, but all appeals have been thrown out. No one's going to let it through. I, I don't think that they should. I mean, it's terrible when you when anyone is killed, but when it's your father, mother, whatever the case that is such a deeper evil thing to do. Like it's, yeah. it goes even deeper than just regular murder, you know? Well, I, my question about this is, do you think this murder would have taken place without the manipulation of Joanne? I mean, I don't think a murder would have taken place, but. I mean, the way that they used their father, yeah, absolutely, that would have happened. But I think that they used the father because of what 
because of the mother. Without without a doubt, like, they were definitely told brainwashed. Them, Go move in, right? Brainwashed. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that like she told them to kill him, but I think that she definitely put it in their minds multiple times. Yeah. Oh, you guys have been screwed by your father. You know, um, he has money that he's not giving you guys. Right. And, yeah, ultimately, they're teenagers. The thought of being screwed over and there's something to gain if they do this, this, and this right. outweighs anything that they can. Like, nothing in their mind is going to be like, oh, wait, this is not normal. This isn't right. They don't have the judgment to, to be like, that. this is not cool. Hey, mom, you want to chill out? Don't tell me to, like, you know take from my father right. it's just like yeah i do think she, that she fueled had, it yeah she definitely fueled it without without a doubt she facilitated the hatred towards tony right and that's why she received six years even though it got well reduced. i think she should have gotten more than six years because she was okay she was the vehicle for holly and sasha seen, to get there yeah we've seen drivers that get more did time nothing, than that that did nothing at all except just drive the people to where they were going right. to commit a murder, get like 15, 20 years. I know. Now, I don't I don't know. Maybe it's because maybe she just didn't know murder was going to be committed, and that's why maybe? Right. There wasn't too much found in her text messaging. It was more of what was found between Ashley and Holly. So I think that's really what happened. That The most damning evidence was the driving over, but she wasn't present for it. So it was easy for her to deny that she didn't know what was taking place there. She didn't know what they were. She was dropping them off for. But then at the same time, you have the text from Ashley to to Joanne saying, "Dad's dead." Right, but that doesn't mean that she knew that that was supposed to take place. True, but you before. could argue. But you could argue. Well, I think they did try to argue. You're right, but you could argue that 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 admits guilt about knowing what was going to happen. Right. So it's you can go either way. It's just so scary that this very normal situation, this happens so many times with um, families of divorce when parents remarry. Um, it's just a very normal family divorce fight. And it ended in murder. And it's just so crazy that things can escalate. And you always think, oh, no, that won't happen. But you know what? Sometimes it can. You don't know what happens. that's scary. You don't know what happens when someone's slighted so many times. Or they they feel like they're... Yeah, they feel as if they're slighted. And they can only handle that for so long. And they... Some people can do that. Some people could truly commit murder over that. Some people just can't handle the pressure well. Yeah. And the anger gets to them. It's so scary. It's crazy. I know. You truly don't know anyone. Oh. All right, guys. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode. We're glad to be back and kind of like back on a regular schedule and back to doing normal things. So it is really good. And we are looking forward to giving you an episode next week on our Australian case. I'm so excited for it. I'm excited too. It's going to be a really good one. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Bye, guys.